This is about the democratization of being able to get away with it. What Bitcoin does is it democratizes access to money. It democratizes access to investment, but it also democratizes access to privacy, access to anonymity, and indirectly, it democratizes access to financial crime that otherwise is only available to those with power and money. Hello and welcome. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we've got an incredible offer for you. If you send us just $1,000 in Bitcoin, we're going to send you $2,000 back, guaranteed. Does that sound fishy to you? It does to most people. But on Wednesday of last week, the world of social media was set ablaze as many of the largest accounts on the systemically important Twitter platform suddenly announced they were feeling generous, soliciting Bitcoin payments, which they promised would be returned and doubled. It's a hell of a story, and we'll talk about it on today's show. My name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm joined as always by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Jonathan is out today. On behalf of all the hosts, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. And today's episode is sponsored by eToro, our last one from them, and the Internet of Money, Volume 3. First, they came for Binance's account. Gemini was next, then Coinbase, then Coindesk, Justin Sun, Charlie Lee, Bitcoin.org, KuCoin Exchange, Bitfinex, the Tron Foundation, Ripple, and more. Millions of collective followers began seeing the same cloying message, quote, I am giving back to my fans. All Bitcoins sent to my address below will be sent back doubled. About an hour in, the attackers ditched the crypto for health tagline they started with and went mainstream. Elon Musk's account led the charge, then Bill Gates, then Elon Musk's account came back for more. Kanye West showed up an hour later with Kim Kardashian West not far behind. Jeff Bezos promised $50 million. Michael Bloomberg, Joe Biden, even Barack Obama, who by himself has more than 120 million followers on Twitter. Quote, I'm feeling generous because of COVID-19. I'll double any BTC amounts sent to my BTC address for the next hour. Good luck and stay safe out there, Musk's account tweeted out. By 5 p.m. New York time, the hack had moved on to tech giants. Apple's account promised to double your Bitcoin. Uber said it would return $10 million to users who sent Bitcoin. Attackers all linked to or directly promoted a single Bitcoin wallet address at first, but then later it expanded to two additional addresses. A few people fell for it. We were just running numbers right before starting the show. And it's something like out of 400 transactions, there are something like 11 that sent more than $1,000, like 80, including that 11, that sent more than $100, and then everything else are numbers that are kind of below that. So given the sheer scale and high visibility of this attack, kind of a wide variety of theories have been shared about what's happening here. But one thing seems consistent across most analysis. This problem originated within Twitter itself. So with that as kind of the context for today's conversation, Andreas, I'd like to start off with you. You know, originally, I think this seemed like it was an attack that was not necessarily coming from inside of Twitter, but it was a way to attack accounts that were using external services, you know, like Hootsuite or Social Flow or the kind of many different options that take Twitter's API and allow people to automate posting or to use it with Teams or stuff like that. As time went on, it became kind of clear that that was not the case. Can you talk about your experience yesterday? So I started seeing these hacks around the time that Binance was hacked pretty early on. Just to clarify, and a bit of a disclaimer here, my account was also compromised. Yeah, why didn't you mention Andreas in the opening credits? Because he was late. This was an after-the-fact thing, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was much later, and my account was compromised after they had already disabled tweeting from blue check verified accounts. So no one was able to tweet out with my account. However, it is shut down. 
So I started seeing this and the first indication was Binance. And then I saw shortly thereafter Gemini and Coinbase. Now, here's the risk analysis I do in this scenario. I look at that and I think, okay, what are the possible avenues to do this? The first and most obvious way to do this is to steal a password. A phishing attack is the easiest way to do so. So the question is, can these accounts be phished? And a lot of people immediately jumped on the idea that, oh, these accounts are poorly managed. They have terrible security. They deserve what happened to them. And I don't really buy that. You know, these are accounts by large exchanges. They're very much under threat and under attack all the time. Yeah, the account itself is an asset. So, I mean, people secure valuable assets. Yes, exactly. And these are not unsophisticated actors. I mean, yes, some of these you might say are a bit sloppy with security under certain circumstances, but perhaps not these three. I wouldn't call any of these sloppy in security. They have sophisticated teams and they invest a lot in security. So I would assume that they have two-factor authentication enabled on the account. I would further assume that that two-factor authentication is not SMS. Some time ago, about a year ago, or maybe two years ago, Twitter introduced time-based one-time passwords, Google Authenticator, as most people know that mechanism, where you have an authenticator app on a mobile device, and that gives you six-digit codes to log in as two-factor, which is much more secure than SMS. SMS, of course, can be hijacked if your SIM card is hijacked. So a lot of people were speculating about all of these different methods of attack. To me, it seemed unlikely that accounts that are very familiar with SIM jacking, because it happens a lot in crypto and has had a lot of high profile reporting, would have SMS. It also seemed unlikely that even if they did, that someone was able to SIM jack phones from big accounts across two different continents, at least, because some of these accounts are China-based or Singapore-based, some are Europe-based, some are US-based. And that involves several different phone carriers in different countries, all done within a matter of hours. It seemed to me very unlikely that that would be the case. So assuming that they did have hardware two-factor authentication, or at least an authenticator app, you can't really steal a password. That's not enough. So then if the account security is likely to be quite secure, what are the other avenues someone can get in? The next most likely mechanism of attack would be APIs. So Twitter has APIs that allow various social media aggregator sites to post so that a whole team of people can schedule and review and post to multiple platforms simultaneously. I use platforms like that too. It allows me to work with a team of people and collaborate on what we post and schedule it out in advance. So when you see a personal message for me, it is personal. But when you see an announcement like I'm doing this video on Saturday, you know, that's scheduled in advance and it's posted automatically. I'm not sitting there attaching images and typing in hashtags in real time. These services, of course, access the Twitter API using OAuth, which is a authentication protocol. It's the same protocol that's used when you log into a site using your Google account and it redirects you, gets an encrypted challenge response message and uses that to authenticate into a site. And these gain full access to the Twitter API and present it in some other site. You're probably familiar with things like Hootsuite and Buffer, Sendable and various other sites like that. Now, 
these sites are not always as well secured. So that was my immediate suspicion because from there you can easily post the message. And if that site security isn't as strong with two-factor, et cetera, I assumed maybe one of these sites had been compromised. And because there are only a handful of social media posting services, it, it was quite possible that all of these disparate companies were using the same. Then the attack continued to escalate. And one of the things that was noticeable was that the tweets that were coming out were saying Twitter web app. Now, when you have an OAuth service that is posting remotely through the API, it has a clear identifier. It says Twitter for iPhone. It says Hootsuite. It says some social media posting or something like that. It doesn't say Twitter web app. So my immediate next suspicion was that this was a browser extension. Again, much easier to compromise a browser extension that is a common single point of failure across all of these different accounts and would have access to the Twitter web API to post on behalf or maybe store credentials for users. There are a lot of sloppy browser extensions out there. And then people started talking about the possibility of a zero-day browser exploit. Now, that would be a very serious problem. Because a zero-day browser exploit effectively means that someone was compromising browsers through some click-through mechanism, remote execution, or something like that, and hijacking credentials from inside the browser secure store. That's a very serious issue because that would affect not just Twitter. But then again, it was only happening on Twitter. And why would you use a zero-day browser exploit that can be enormously powerful to hack only one site, Twitter, and then to use it to do this silly giveaway Nigerian scam. I'm using the term Nigerian scam, not because Nigerians have anything to do with this, but because this type of scam originated with a Nigerian prince story. I mean, it's a story, actually, that we've seen repeat over and over and over again. For two decades. Yeah, exactly. I was reading through some kind of gaming coverage of this, and many of them were likening it to scams that have been pulled in EVE Online, which is a popular sort of laissez-faire MMO. And RuneScape also, which is really like a mostly for kids type of environment. And again, like seven years ago, apparently there was a rash of this type of give me your money and I'll give you double back. And again, of course, in cryptocurrency, we've seen this since basically the beginning. The only difference here, the cryptocurrency really plays a minor role in this. Although the media have been jumping all over Bitcoin as the core of the story, the core of the story isn't Bitcoin. Twitter got hacked. And the question is how? Now we have a better idea, so I'll kind of wrap things up. All of this was playing out in my mind and I was just going through scenarios. It's important in these cases to follow kind of a string of logical conclusions from most likely to least likely following principles such as Occam's razor. You know, we could originally have jumped directly to Russian hackers are using deep state secrets of the pornography elitist ring of Jeffrey Epstein to blackmail Jack into giving them the keys to Trump's account in order to start blah, blah, blah. Or you can just say, OK, what's the most likely explanation for this phenomenon that doesn't require us to add additional assumptions? And that's Occam's razor. In a security, you have to follow a methodology like that. At some point, it became obvious as bigger and bigger accounts were being compromised that it was now unlikely that this was a common browser extension or social media API because it would simply be unlikely that all of them would be using the same one and had not taken immediate steps to turn those off. As soon as I saw this was happening, I went to my Twitter account and I did three things. I logged out all sessions that were not active so that only my single browser I terminated all browser extensions that have access to the Twitter API. 
and I terminated all remotely authenticated services that have access to Twitter API through OAuth, things like the social media posting services, not knowing whether any of these were the avenue, but basically shutting all the doors and windows, button down the hatches, at which point my Twitter account was only accessible through a 50 character alphanumeric random password with a hardware security key, universal two-factor authentication device. Pretty much the gold standard of security as unhackable as it gets. And I assume the accounts like Joe Biden's and Donald Trump's and, you know, people who are targeted continuously have at least good security and were at least doing similar things. Their security teams were probably doing similar things like disabling these external services. So when they continue to get hacked, now the focus switches completely to, okay, this is what we call a God level admin access inside Twitter. This is an insider attack. This is the only explanation that now makes sense. Either there is a fundamental bug in Twitter's API that allows them to do a remote exploit, but the even more likely explanation is some kind of social engineering attack against an employee who has access to some kind of user account dashboard with godlike admin access. And that's exactly what Twitter is saying happens. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by eToro. With eToro, you can create a diverse and flexible portfolio of the world's most popular crypto assets. Follow trends and market data with charts and price alerts. And you can even learn by trading in virtual mode with $100,000 of test funds available as soon as you start your account. eToro was founded in 2007 and began adding crypto trading in 2013. It offers support for 140 countries, including U.S. traders. eToro has no hidden fees, no commissions, and low spreads compared to competitors. It's easy to get started with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support. Create your account in minutes right now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Please trade responsibly. Crypto assets are volatile and trading carries risks. Once again, thanks to eToro. And now back to the show. An internal employee was either blackmailed, paid off, or socially engineered. We're not quite sure yet. And they had access to a user account dashboard. Interestingly enough, screenshots of that dashboard have now emerged, taken by the attackers and circulated on Twitter that show a number of features, including the infamous shadow banning capability that has now been verified by screenshots of this dashboard. Shadow banning is where a user is silenced, but they don't know they're silenced. They continue to tweet, but nobody can see them. So anyhow, Twitter responded to this first by blocking Twitter messages that contain that Bitcoin address. So the attacker switched Bitcoin address, therefore demonstrating for the millionth time that block lists don't work in an environment where you can create an address in a millisecond. Then finally, Twitter pulled out the nuclear option, which has never happened before. I was in the middle of tweeting and explaining what's happening and trying to engage with people when I tried to tweet out a message and Twitter said, Due to suspicious activity, we have blocked this tweet, which happens sometimes when they suspect that you're a robot spamming out lots of tweets very fast. But it didn't seem like 
I was tweeting that often or unusually often. So I was surprised. About 10, 15 minutes later, Twitter announced that all blue check verified accounts, or as one Twitter user put it, and I love this term, the bourgeoisie, <laughs> have been silenced. Yeah. And that started the most fantastic aspect of this entire thing, which was the revolt of the Twitter proletariat to overthrow the bourgeoisie. <laughs> Suddenly, all of the blue checks were completely silent, could not participate at all. In the midst of this, we started retweeting accounts. My favorite one is an account called EveryWord, which has tweeted 109,000 English words as single word tweets so that you can construct arbitrary sentences simply by retweeting one of their word tweets. <laughs> so I then retweeted, help, I can't tweet what is happening. <laughs> so it's like tapping Morse code onto the jail cell bars in order to communicate with the outside world or blinking into the camera in Morse code. And it was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. And lots of people enjoyed that aspect of it. I was having so much fun. It was hilarious. And then suddenly I get logged out. I can't log back in. I look at my email and I see a message that was maybe 15 minutes old that I hadn't noticed. Your two-factor authentication has been disabled. If you didn't do this, please contact Twitter support. I'm like, oh, crap. So at that point, my account's been compromised. My two-factor authentication was disabled from the user admin dashboard that Twitter has internally. That's the only way you can disable it if I don't do it. And my password was changed. And even better, the email connected to my account was changed, which I now find out is something they did to all of these accounts. What that means is then when you ask for support from Twitter support and you give them your handle and the associated email account, you get an automated message saying, sorry, that email doesn't match our internal records. We can't help you. So basically, Twitter support isn't answering anymore. Yeah. And so I'm locked out. I switched to a standby account that I was working on for Spanish tweeting called a Antonop underscore ES for Espanol. I said hola to the world again and <laughs> then switched back to English because my Spanish is very rudimentary and explained what was happening and published the video explaining what was happening. I'm still locked out. Twitter support is completely overwhelmed and I don't expect they're going to get back to me. I'm assuming in the pecking order of Joe Biden, Kim Kardashian, Obama, and Elon Musk, I'm somewhere in position 7 million at the bottom. So sometime in the next weeks or months, I might get my account recovered. I'm not too worried. I didn't sleep much last night, but that was more excitement than terror. So that's where we are today. And now we go to the backlash of the media, where everybody has an opinion as to how Bitcoin was responsible for this hack. And I think that's a very interesting angle we need to discuss. Yeah. But, you know, that's what happens. So, Andreas, like this Espanol account, <laughs> did you kind of have that as a backup, like thinking that maybe something like this could possibly happen and it would be good to just have a backup just in case? Or was that just a happy accident? Oh, it was a happy accident. I mean, I had an account that I was setting up with the intention of having a parallel stream of Spanish language tweets for every English language tweet I do. Yeah, that sounds good. Just because if I put Spanish language tweets, as I have before, in my English Twitter account, some of the audience are really, I don't know, bobulated. And it's confusing to see two tweets 
one after the other in different languages. And I found after long consideration that it might be better to have a separate account. I've been trying to set this up for a couple months now and I hadn't reached the finish line. So it was sitting there with no followers and no tweets, just set up and ready to go, secured and everything. And it was a lot easier to just jump in with that account, which showed some history, than try to build a new one. Yeah, I mean, because like I said before, these accounts are assets, especially the more influential and the more followers you have. And this is like your thing that you do. This is your livelihood. Oh, it's without a doubt. This and YouTube are the foundation of my entire livelihood, but not just my livelihood. I mean, there's a whole team who gets paid because of the work we do on these platforms. I mean, this is the thing we always worry about, although mostly I worry about deplatforming rather than this kind of problem, because at least I think this will get resolved. But it shows both the immense power these platforms have and the immense risk that comes from single point of failure. The key takeaway in my mind is this. There is nothing anyone could do to secure themselves against this type of attack. If a insider with God level admin powers is compromised, I could have 17 factor authentication with a 700 character password and a magical incantation and it still wouldn't be enough. They can just brush that aside with a wave of a hand and a click of a mouse and override all of the security settings. And that's the problem, right? That's why single points of failure are dangerous. Yeah, because the weak link is the administrator with the godlike powers. One more quick question, and then we can talk more about the larger issue, I guess. Were you surprised that the shadow banning was confirmed? Oh, no, I knew that they did shadow banning. And, you know, quite honestly, it's a necessary tool in an environment like that. And we've had a long conversation about, is it censorship? Is it not? Do you have rights on a platform that's private like this? How much power do centralized monopolies have to control speech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it really hinges on that. If you decide you should have free speech rights, then none of the moderation tools are legitimate. And if you decide that you don't have free speech rights because it's a private platform, then any moderation tool, as capricious as it, as it might seem, is legitimate. So I don't think shadow banning is any more or less of an issue than blocking, muting, keyword management, algorithmic promotion of certain tweets and all of those other things that these platforms do. Just as a practical concern, again, like shadow banning, the kind of purpose of it is that it prevents someone from creating a new account because they don't know that their current account, that the one that they're using right now that's been shadow banned, is actually impacted. They can figure it out by talking to people who would normally receive those tweets, but that's otherwise what you typically see is that a throwaway account gets banned, and then the person immediately creates another throwaway account, and it effectively has no kind of change. But if you shadow ban them, then potentially they cannot notice, and so it can be more useful like that. I think the accusations around it being used sort of on a political basis, I think that's kind of where the problematic elements come in. But it's problematic if you're doing things on a political basis no matter what, regardless of the technology that you're using. Well, within it, it has limitations because to be used successfully, it has to be used by an account that doesn't interact much with its audience and therefore won't notice, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's exactly the kind of account where it should be used, which is sock puppet accounts that are throwaways. If someone's shadow bans me, it would take maybe 15 minutes before everyone who subscribes to my tweets noticed and I would notice. So 
it doesn't really work in that context. So I think those criticisms are kind of overblown. But anyway, not to distract from the broader question, which is that when you centralize access, security, and control, that central location becomes a honeypot. And when you put hundreds of thousands of important assets or accounts in one place, just like crypto exchanges do, or Twitter does in this case, you have to have 100,000 times better security than if these were decentralized and controlled by separate credentials and separate control spheres by the individual users. And the exact same problem exists with Twitter and with exchanges, which is that 100,000 times better security simply doesn't exist. Even 1,000 times better security doesn't exist. So if you even concentrate 1,000 user accounts, credentials, and controls in one place, you've already tipped the balance and made it less secure. If you do it with a million, you've tipped it thousandfold more. If you do it with a billion accounts, it's become a joke, right? And that's what we saw demonstrated here. Okay, so there are two different angles that I wanna talk about this from. What's the impact on Bitcoin? And then what's the impact on decentralization? Because I think that it can be argued fairly reasonably that this is kind of a bad look for Bitcoin, but a good look for decentralization. And let's talk about what decentralization can actually offer. So first off, Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the venue that was used to monetize what appears to be an attack inside of Twitter itself, whether it's somebody being socially engineered. And Twitter said basically that a number of their employees who had access to these tools had attempts made on them. They didn't actually say how many of those had succeeded. So this might have actually been on multiple employees within Twitter who had this level of access. And then on the other side, there have been a number of allegations from kind of within the hacking community, as reported by Vice and Motherboard over the last 24 hours, that somebody was literally paid off. And again, like the kind of argument in favor of that is not great. But the point is, is that imagine for a moment that you could take control of any and as many as you want of kind of all the millions of Twitter accounts that are out there, but for just a few hours. How do you turn that ability into money? If you put up a GoFundMe page, then any transactions that, you know, any money that gets sent to you, well, that's all going to be reversed. If you, you know, make a bet against Tesla stock and then you compromise Elon Musk and make him say something that causes the stock price to tank, well, then you're going to make a bunch of money there, but ultimately you have to get that money out of the system. And even if you're, you know, in a non-extraditing country, in some cases, given how disruptive this was, Oftentimes, people who commit this sort of thing or try to pull this sort of thing can find themselves getting extradited anyways because identity is almost kind of inherent to the way that these markets work. So Bitcoin, although not too many people have it, as we can see from the relatively small amount of money, just about $120,000 at last count that was actually extracted from only about 400 people, the vast majority of it coming from like a top 80 who sent $1,000 or more. It's not very much money, but still, it's money that you probably can get without going to jail, right? Because there's no identity inherent there. And sure, you have to like get it out somewhere, but you, know, you don't have to go through an exchange, right? You just talk to a person who wants to buy Bitcoin, and maybe they're not checking kind of the registry or the addresses. And then as we've seen, those tokens have kind of already been mixed. So that's kind of been my working theory about this is that maybe it's not about the money. Maybe it's about the not getting caught. Because the attention that's being put on this, the investigation is going to be just intense coming from every angle. Yeah. And weren't there some kind of messages in the blockchain associated with these transactions that were saying something about like, Bitcoin is traceable, why not Monero or something? <laughs> yes. There was an outgoing transaction that sent some dust amounts, which are amounts that are too small to spend, 
to burner addresses constructed in such a way as to spell out a message in the Bitcoin address, including use Monero, Bitcoin is traceable and things like that. Were those being paid to the attackers or were those the attackers removing money? As far as I know, that was from this address out, which means it was someone who had control of the key. Interesting. So that seems like the attacker is sending a message. Yep. But I mean, why would the attacker send that message? I'm not entirely sure. And I haven't verified that, in fact, it was. That's what I read, but I haven't had the time to look into it in so much detail. It's an interesting general idea, this sending messages. I want to focus on the first thing you said about this, Adam, because one of the puzzling things about this is the fact that given access to all of these accounts, we are very, very lucky that the attackers show a stunning lack of imagination. The things they could have done, I gave a great suggestion, which was to have the Donald Trump address post a music video of one of my favorite songs called Shut the Fuck Up and Put on a Mask, (laughs) which is a public service announcement delivered in a very nice way. More seriously, though, there was an incredible opportunity for stock manipulation, especially with Elon Musk. But, you know, if they had the full range of Twitter blue checks, they could have done so much more. So why didn't they? And why did they go for Bitcoin? And I think this is where we need to talk more clearly about this is not about being able to get away with it. Other people are being able to get away with crimes like this all the time. This is about the democratization of being able to get away with it. What Bitcoin does is it democratizes access to money, it democratizes access to investment, but it also democratizes access to privacy, access to anonymity, and indirectly, it democratizes access to financial crime that otherwise is only available to those with power and money. Let's take a very recent example. We talked about the idea that you could do a stock manipulation by shorting things, but then how would you get away with it? There's no extradition treaties. If you're in certain countries, you might get away with it because there's no extradition, but if you're in other countries, you'll be extradited to the US and face consequences. Turns out the one place that has absolutely no extradition treaty with the US is Washington, DC, because during the beginning of the pandemic, a whole bunch of well-known senators and Congress people who were in confidential briefings went out and told the public that everything was fine while in the background shorting cruise lines and buying stock in pharmaceuticals, healthcare companies, et cetera, based on the information they got from these secret briefings. That's insider trading. It's specifically prohibited under a congressional act for members of Congress. It is money laundering. It is fraud. And of course, unfortunately, these people were not able to be prosecuted because of the lack of an extradition treaty from Congress to the rest of the world. So they got away with it. They got away with it blatantly. This was all over the news. Nothing happened. Similar to how the Panama Papers, nothing happened. Similar to how we've seen scandal after scandal after scandal with insider trading. And unless you're Martha Stewart and you receive the raw end of the deal, nothing happens. So the ability to get away with insider trading, with stock shorting, fraud, and all of these other 
types of white-collar crimes is currently an expensive commodity that is only available when you have very expensive lawyers or enormous amounts of political power so that you are untouchable. What Bitcoin does is it democratizes that, just like it democratizes everything else. So yes, if these people happen to be US senators, they could have done a short sell on Elon Musk. But because they're not US senators, they had to find a democratically available way to monetize their scam and not use the sophisticated, simpler mechanisms that are offered to US dollar and stockholders and US stock markets. Hey, LTB listeners, if you're enjoying the show and would like to keep hearing further episodes, please head over to ltbshow.com and subscribe to our direct feed today. After many, many years of speaking to you on the network I created back in 2014, it looks likely that our time here has come to an end, and this could be our last episode released through the LTB network. But you'll find new episodes as soon as they're released at ltbshow.com. So subscribe at ltbshow.com today. And if you have any questions or comments, send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And thanks for listening. Do you want a Swiss bank account in your pocket? Do you want to learn about unstoppable code and universal access to basic finance? Discover these topics and an explanation of the philosophy, economics, politics, and poetics behind blockchain technology in the Internet of Money, Volume 3 by Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas's most inspiring and thought-provoking talks. Available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited. Order The Internet of Money, Volume 3 on Amazon today. I guess I was just speculating before, like, if they did any tracking of, like, you know, which accounts were most successful at bringing in Bitcoin. I don't think you actually could track that. It's actually interesting because the attack itself was sophisticated in a lot of ways in terms of what it was able to accomplish. But in terms of the way that they actually executed it, they used the same Bitcoin address for everything. So Twitter was able to blacklist it. And then, of course, they generated two others that collected at least one. But I mean, again, if you were going to do this attack, it would have been made a lot more difficult kind of to track what was going on if every account was issuing its own address, right? And then you would be able to tell which accounts actually were kind of doing that routing. But as it stands, I mean, you could do like a time correlation, but yeah, it would be quite difficult, I think, to actually try and figure out where these are coming from. One thing that I think is interesting about it is kind of the order in which the accounts that were chosen to be compromised, because clearly there was a bandwidth issue here, right? Kind of the best way to do something like this would be to compromise all the accounts at once, have them all tweet at basically the same time, and then you get kind of the maximum impact before people have had a chance to figure out that there's a scam going on. Um, but that wasn't what happened. In practice, what we saw is crypto companies and large exchanges specifically, and a couple of the larger protocols and their founders, they were compromised first. And then you saw like the kind of non-crypto people, but people who crypto people pay a lot of attention to, like Elon Musk, they were kind of the next round. And then you saw it kind of expand out and go to, you know, the bigger tech companies with Uber and Apple getting hit kind of one after the other. And then after that, they went for politicians. So as far as kind of what they did, you would think that if this was about something other than trying to steal Bitcoin or trying to scam people out of Bitcoin, they would have started with the big accounts first, but they didn't. They started with the accounts that crypto people pay attention to. And then after those venues had kind of been exhausted, then they expanded out to bigger and bigger accounts. Again, just trying to widen that net 
Again, Obama was one of the later ones to get hit. 120 million followers on that. If you do like a time calculation relative, I think that more of the kind of funds that were scammed came from much earlier in the process from those accounts that had, you know, under a million in many cases followers compared to those larger accounts that just don't speak to the crypto audience as much. Again, there are probably a lot of things at play here, but it seems unlikely that this is just about the money. Or maybe they were expecting bigger things, right? Maybe this was a kind of surprising disappointment to them. There are a bunch of theories. We'll talk about kind of a couple of them later, but just staying here, let's talk about decentralization for a second. A very common kind of refrain I've heard in the last 24 hours is that we need decentralized systems because Twitter as kind of a central point of failure, you know, it has this God mode, right? Because occasionally they need to actually do an account recovery and change the address, the email address that's associated with an account. But in this case, that was abused. And, you know, it's a statement that's true, right? Decentralization, if you truly decentralized it, would actually help here. But if you look at the way that a lot of smart contracts are constructed or kind of the DeFi ecosystem is constructed, well, actually, they have very similar vulnerabilities. And we've talked about this before on the show pretty extensively. You know, when you introduce these controls, on the one hand, it means that if you find a bug in your smart contract, well, you can fix that bug, right? And you don't need to get kind of broad consensus. And like if you, you know, have a freeze clause in there, right, then you can freeze everything going on. And that's really, really good if something goes bad. But by nature of having those controls at all, it actually opens a window to allow the exact types of attacks that you're trying to prevent and ameliorate against from happening. So really, as far as I can tell, the only true way to get rid of this type of problem is to have a truly decentralized protocol that has no backdoors, that has no sort of admin level controls or the ability to freeze anything. And again, like I just wonder how many of these platforms that aspire to be this have the confidence in their code to even do that at this point. That's the double-edged sword of smart contract governance, which is that if you decentralize it completely, any bug turns into a catastrophic, unsolvable problem like the DAO. If you don't decentralize it completely, then you have some intervention capabilities, and then you need to be very careful how you control those. To me, it's not a question of either or. I think this is absolutely a degree of decentralization. And I think Twitter could, in fact, and most social media platforms could much more effectively decentralize essential governance mechanisms such as protecting against trollish behavior, harassment, abusive behavior, etc. Do you think they will, though? Or do you think this will increase interest in something like Mastodon or alternatives to Twitter that are more decentralized? I very much doubt this will be sufficient to encourage alternatives to Twitter. The vast majority of people, they don't appreciate why this is happening or decentralization from the general perspective produces applications that are less well-integrated, clunkier to use with difficult user interfaces and insufficient adoption. All of those things are huge barriers. Twitter and other social media platforms have very strong incentives to gradually relinquish many of these activities as much as possible to either algorithms, AI, or their user population. And it's a careful balance, right? Because the algorithms themselves express biases and constraints by design. And if you give it to your user population, you can find yourself in a situation where the user population that is attracted is actually looking for an environment in which toxic behavior is less controlled and you get a takeover, right? You get a situation where 
It's called The Tragedy of the Open Garden or something like that, if I remember correctly. It's been written about an open source about how communities can get destroyed from within when certain types of behavior are not controlled by the moderators in the spirit of free speech and openness and tolerance, etc. It's the tolerance paradox. People take advantage of these rules to make the environment toxic. The ones who are not interested in that and produce the best content start leaving. And gradually the whole level of conversation drops and drops and drops until it becomes accessible and nobody wants to be there anymore. Right. I can think of a lot of examples of that as you were describing it where they were running through my head. Right. And people have studied this phenomenon. It's the idea that actually having strong benevolent moderators that enforce community standards and protect good content and discourage antisocial behavior actually make for better communities. And the ideology of complete and absolute free speech and tolerance to intolerance creates this paradoxical cycle that destroys communities. But, you know, that's not the point here. I think the idea here is that Twitter can do more to put users more in control. There are a lot of limitations in the underlying architecture of the platform that make it difficult to make very broad changes like that, which is why a lot of the announcements you see from Twitter are tinkering around the edges rather than addressing very, very key problems that users keep asking for. But, you know, it's not an easy problem. If it was, they would have solved it. They've got the money, they've got the motivation to do it. Clearly, it's not an easy problem to solve. If they actually enforce their rules strictly, they're going to have to deplatform Trump, very simply, and a good third of the leadership in the GOP, because if you just take their rules at face value, they've been engaging in hate speech. And they're also going to have to deplatform half of the Democratic platform, too. So they can't do that against people who have political power. So instead, they have to kind of do these mealy-mouthed half measures. Why do you think Trump's account wasn't hit? Because they didn't dare and they were afraid or they liked him? Or I think it was eventually. But, you know, if you're an attacker, and this is where I'm going to actually disagree with Adam, the purpose of this was money. There's no need for an, any more complex explanation or conspiracy or any elaborate plot beyond that. The purpose of this was money. They, I think, were anticipating that with the reach of followers they had, they would get more. In fact, if they wanted to do that, they probably should not have used the native SegWit address because <laughs> a good third of the popular wallets don't yet support native SegWit addresses, so they failed there. And, you know, I think the crypto audience is now better trained to avoid these scams. People have been growing their awareness and skills in avoiding scams like this. So it wasn't as successful as they had hoped for. So on the other side of that, we actually saw some interesting examples of centralization helping people. One example of that is Coinbase, which figured out pretty early on that that single address was the address that was propagating and basically made it so that if you keep your coins inside of Coinbase, well, that address has been blacklisted. And so you weren't allowed to make any transactions sending out to it. Another thing that happened is originally they were promoting this URL that was tied to this crypto for health scam that was kind of the first phase of it. And they were using Cloudflare, which is kind of a centralized service that's intended to protect sites against denial of service attacks. And Cloudflare also figured it out pretty quick. And they put up basically phishing warnings saying that this is probably a scam. So I agree with you about the sophistication. I think, again, people have been in crypto. We've just seen this so many times. You know, if it seems like it's too good to be true, chances are pretty good it's too good to be true. And that doesn't affect everybody. There's always going to be an outlier, small number of people who are buying into this stuff. But, you know, all told, considering the reach we're talking about here, 
400 transactions, only 80 of which were over $100. Like, that's actually pretty impressive to me as far as how little they got. Yes. And I think to answer more directly your question, why didn't they go after Trump? A very good reason. One, not a very good audience for crypto, simply speaking. Like, the percentage of people who are followers of Trump, and followers, I mean, in the Twitter sense, that have access to liquid crypto and know how to use a wallet, eh, probably not that big. That's not any different than the Biden kind of Obama argument. I think that another possible explanation for Trump is that Trump's account has actually been attacked within Twitter before. And so it's possible that it simply was not accessible to whatever that employee's God level account was. And it may have been sequestered to a much higher level because it is prone to these types of disruptions. Yeah, that's possible. The other logical explanation would be that the moment you attack Trump, you now attract the attention of the Secret Service, the FBI, the Department of Justice. That's a good point, too. Yeah. And it's a state level response. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. By the way, they didn't compromise Trump's, but Trump's account was also turned off. The moment that happens, Twitter received an invitation to go speak to Congress by Josh Hawley or one of the GOP Congress people. Yeah, it was Hawley. So, you know, that's exactly what would happen. So already the DOJ is involved, but that would have pulled them in a lot sooner and a lot more aggressively. That would have been treated as a national security issue, which would have pulled in probably, among other things, the NSA. You don't want to mess with those people. Yeah, not for $120,000. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially if what you're going for is to make a quick buck. I was really surprised they went after Biden and Obama, honestly. I was too. Yeah, Obama would still have Secret Service protection too, because he's a former president. Yes, and they went after three current presidential candidates, Trump, Biden, and Kanye West. (laughs) Is Kanye running for president? Well, it seems like he might be dropping out right now. But yeah, he announced a couple of days ago. (laughs) Oh, where was I? I guess I wasn't on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't that big of a story again. Like he's not polling very highly and he might have already dropped out. Okay, so I want to turn to the more kind of theory angle because we've got the money theory. There are a couple of other theories that are worth talking about if just briefly. One theory is that this is all about Jack Dorsey, because in addition to Twitter getting a hit and the Bitcoin scam being perpetrated there, we also saw Cash App get hit, where this doubling scam kind of was being taken advantage of there. So it's possible that this was actually all about Jack Dorsey. On the other side of things, it is the political season, right? And so while we saw accounts being taken over on the Democratic side, we didn't see any taken over on the Republican side as far as prominent individuals are concerned. So That kind of goes both ways. On the one hand, maybe it's Democrats were being targeted. On the other hand, maybe it's an attempt to set up Republicans as scapegoats for this, right? And to kind of put ideology into the mix to further confuse things. And then the other thing that's kind of occurred to me is that this could actually be an attack on Bitcoin's reputation itself, right? Get in line. I mean, this is not the first Bitcoin scam or association between the two. It's definitely true, but this is high profile. So that was the last tweet that I tried to send that got blocked on Twitter. It was when I found out I was being blocked. In response to someone saying, this is going to discourage people from Bitcoin, my answer was, what, you mean the people who are scared of financial freedom will no longer trust financial freedom and will no longer seek financial freedom, which means it will only be useful to those who actually need it. That's the bottom line. If the ability to have self-determination, to be able to transact, et cetera, scares you. It's clearly not for you, and that's fine. If what you want from mainstream adoption is the kind of people who want to have their hand held by a centralized institution, they will become 
perhaps Bitcoin users, but they'll never leave Coinbase. And I don't really think that's useful. All right, so we're going to wrap now. Sorry, folks. It's been such a crazy couple of days. This is, we're going to cut this a little bit short. So that's a wrap on this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Stephanie Murphy, along with myself, Adam B. Levine. This episode was sponsored by eToro. And once again, thank you to them to sponsoring us over the last number of episodes, as well as Andreas's book and audiobook, if you want to check it out there, The Internet of Money, Volume 3. Music for today's show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or tips, send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And we'll see you next time.